Let us now stand as we come to the reading of God's Word once more, as we hear our sermon text this morning from Acts chapter 9. Let us stand and let us hear the Word of our God. Again, our sermon text this morning is from Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. Hear the Word of God. Then Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if you found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, you have blessed us through the reading of your word this day. And to God, we pray that you will use these words to move our hearts, to give glad tidings of joy and thanksgiving. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. As we have uh, seen much in the book of Acts, there are a number of passages that we can uh, probably quote from memory. And this is definitely one of them. The conversion of Saul. Now, this man, Saul of Tarsus, who had sat at the feet of Gamaliel, who had been a Pharisee of Pharisees, who had been a one of the chief persecutors of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, has come to faith. And he has come to faith in an amazing way. Now I'm sure again if we uh, spoke and we talked about our own conversion experiences, I uh, uh, doubt, though I've been surprised in the past, that the Lord Jesus did not appear to you on a road and appeared in a blinding light. You know, this is kind of a unique experience in the Bible. But one of the things that's important for us to remember in this passage is that while His conversion might be you know, kind of exemplary, the nature of His conversion is ordinary. How is it that Saul has come to faith. He has come to faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. He has come to faith through the revelation of Jesus Christ unto his heart. He has come to faith 
because he had been called out from before the foundation of the world to be a saint of the living God. And so it's important as we come to this passage this morning that we not again look unto his conversion experience and play kind of this game of conversion envy. You know, I'm sure many of us have been in uh, situations where we've heard people giving testimonies of faith and uh, people will talk about how they were, you know, how they were addicted to drugs or, or they had been murderers or adulterers. And, and we hear uh, these, these testimonies and it can kind of well up in us uh, this idea, well, I wasn't that bad of a sinner. You know, his conversion was more glorious than my own. And then we have a testimony sometimes to punch up our own testimonies in order to kind of meet that standard. But one of the things that we can learn from this, again, is of the ordinariness of the manner in which men and women come to know that they are sinners in need of a Savior. And again, while Saul's sins may be grander on the scheme of things, the reality is uh, that he was no different than you or I. He was a man who was spiritually blind. He was a man who did not know that he had been living in sin. He was a man who did not understand the nature of his own depravity. But here we see a man who, having this experience, having uh, this opportunity to come face to face with the living and the true God, comes out of it a changed man. Now some people you'll hear will talk about that there was a change where Saul became Paul. As if he had undergone a naming change in Acts chapter 9. But of course, that's not really the case. Paul had always been Saul, and Saul had always been Paul. Much like we see in other portions of the Bible where men have Hebrew names and Greek names. When he was in a Greek-speaking city, he was Paul. When he was among the Hebrews, he was Saul. And so it's important to note here again is the way in which we see this change of life in Saul. Saul has become that person whom he sought to destroy. And he has come to be that person who is now named in uh, the number of the elect because God had mercy upon him. Because Christ's righteousness was bestowed upon him. Because he now no longer was one who was alien to the Father, but now is a servant of the living and the true God. And this amazing testimony, again, is a reminder to each and every one of us of what has taken place in our own redemption. Again, we who were idolaters, we who were enemies of the living God, have been changed as in an instant. And while we might not have seen the flashing light of heaven, we have been worked upon in the same way. We have been immediately translated from death unto life. Again, our entire persons have changed through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have become, again, new creatures in Jesus Christ. 
Again, Paul, Saul and Paul here, again, as he is engaged in this work, again, he goes from this man who is going house to house, grabbing men and women out of their homes and putting them into prison, to soon being the man who himself is in prison, writing words and letters to churches to tell people about this Savior, about this way that has immediately translated of his own life. Again, this change that we see in this man can only be wrought from above. Just like each one of us had our own lives changed from above. And this is an important thing to consider in our, our walk with Christ. It's an important thing to think about when we are in those moments of questioning our own salvation, when we are drawn low by the things of this life and we're considering in our own heart, well, am I truly saved or am I not? As a wise man once said, if we had the power to lose our salvation, every single one of us would. Because every one of us is a weak vessel. Every one of us is uh, but human in nature. Every one of us still has the old man within us. But the knowledge that salvation is not the work of the flesh, but the work of the Holy Spirit is meant to give us that assurance that we see later on in the life of Saul. And Saul is no different from us. He is a sinner saved by grace. He is a sinner who has been changed by that powerful work of the plan of God. And so as we look at this passage, again, let us keep that in mind. That what happened to Saul has happened to us. And what has happened to Saul can happen to any sinner. What is necessary that men be saved, but but they believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is again what we see happen in the life of Saul. And we see this in verse 6 as he trembles and is astonished. And he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? Again, that's not the most explicit statement of faith we have in the Bible. But it's a testimony again of the nature of what's happened. Earlier in this passage, he says in verse 5, And he said, Who are you, Lord? And when he says that, he has no idea who he's talking to. He has no conception that the Lord Jesus Christ is appearing to him. Again, this is a, a, a way in which he is referring to this thing that is before him in an honorable way. You know, in the same way, we, if we approach somebody we don't know, would say, uh, yes sir, or yes ma'am. Again, it's a, 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 a term here of recognizing authority. Again, we see the way in which uh, this name changes so quickly for Saul. And he goes from questioning who this man is to confessing that this man is the Lord of heaven and earth. And what is the proper response to those who have been uh, changed, to those who have been called by the grace of Jesus Christ? Uh, The only and always right response is obedience to this call, this new life that we have received in Christ Jesus. That's why Saul will say, Lord, what do you want me to do? 
And we see again the fruits of the Spirit already welling themselves up in the life of this man who has been changed by the Spirit. Again, that's a vital part again as we consider our own place in the kingdom. Again, is our response to the Word of God, Lord, what do you want me to do? Or is it, Lord, what would you make me do now? Is your response to the Word of God, do I really have to do this? Or is your response, Word of God, thanks be to the Lord that you have given me this opportunity to serve you? Again, it's amazing how much is packed in to these few verses in the, in the conversion of Saul. In the way in which the Lord Jesus uses this event to teach His people. You know, ultimately, one of the things, of course, that we learn from this passage is that we're never sure who is going to come to faith. Again, imagine you are one of these Christians whom uh, Saul is ripping out of their homes. Again, what's the natural response that we give to people who grab us out of our homes? Do we immediately thank them? Do we uh, respond with grace and with kindness and with love? You know, again, let's be honest with ourselves. How would we react if an agent of the state came in and grabbed us out of our homes, especially if we knew that we were innocent? But again, remember what had happened in the life of Saul. And whenever Saul had come into contact with Christians, what had been their response? Well, we have a witness to that, of course, in the life of Stephen. Remember there at the end of chapter 7 as we hear of Saul standing there holding the coats of the men who were stoning Stephen to death. And what was Stephen's response to being stoned to death? Again, he called out unto the Lord that the Lord would speak unto these men, that the Lord would forgive these men. Again, we see that, that example of Stephen, the way in which uh, these men and women who have been being arrested and being thrown in prison have continued to faithfully pray for this man, this, this man who had done them evil. Again, we see the outworking of those prayers, the way in which the prayers of the faithful are answered in the conversion of Saul. It's one of the things that we see consistently throughout the Bible from righteous men and women. And what does Jesus tell us to do if someone strikes us in the, in the, in the face? To turn the other cheek. You know, what does the Lord Jesus tell us through the book of Deuteronomy? He tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Again, this consistent witness to the Bible is that we are to pray for those who persecute us. We are not to return evil for evil. Again, we see the fulfillment of the, the, the application of the witness of God's people in the conversion of Saul. Again, how many of us are moved to pray in this way? For those uh, who uh, mock us for our faith. Those who run us down uh, for living in the ways of Jesus. But again, uh, th- this passage here is given to us uh, as a witness to the fulfillment, to the prayers of the righteous who have prayed for this man Saul. Now, as we'll see later on, uh, we also are told in the book of Acts uh, that not everybody was happy that Saul was converted. 
And we'll look at that passage later, but it's important again to see the way in which you know, Jesus here uh, speaks to Saul in the midst of this particular uh, incident. In verse 5, again, we, we have looked at that. We have uh, seen how Saul reacts. And then the Lord says, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And again, this is one of those uh, uh, images that you know, I'll confess I really had no idea what it means to kick against the goads. I'm not sure about you, but I don't have goads kind of laying around my house. It's not something I, I, I use from day to day. But the idea here is, again, uh, the idea is, is that uh, you know, think of the wisdom of hitting a brick wall. Now, what happens when we hit a brick wall? Well, first of all, what happens to the wall? Nothing, right? You know, if we are blessed, we might get some dust off the mortar. What happens to your hand when you hit a brick wall? Again, who takes the brunt of the punch? Your knuckles and your bones and your wrist and your muscles and everything that's connected to your fist. Well, that's what this, this expression is meant to convey. That not only has Saul been punching against a brick wall, but who has he been harming in the midst of these things? Has he been harming the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Has he been harming Jesus? Who alone has felt the pain of this work? It's been Saul. Of course, that's the nature of all sin. And all sin is kicking against the goads. It's striking a brick wall. It's acting as if, again, we have the power to overthrow the wisdom of God. It's acting like we know better than the law that God has provided for us. And that's one of the reasons why we see in the Scriptures, and again, this is one of these things that shows itself from generation to generation, is that what is the consequences of sin? Of course, ultimately, the wages of sin is death. But again, we see in our day-to-day lives the consequences of sin. We see the effect that it has not only on our souls and on our hearts, but we see the effect it has in society and in the church itself. Again, sin is always a retrograde movement. It always brings division. It always brings damage, not only upon the souls of God's people, but upon the world itself. And the, the, there, there's no functional difference between uh, the sin that we see of Saul in the arresting of God's people and the breaking of any of the other commandments that we have in the Scriptures. Again, that's uh, again one of the things we can learn from this, this image here, again, is of the corollary. Again, if sin, if fighting against the Lord is the same as hitting brick walls, then what is the obedience that we give to the law? Again, uh, the Apostle Paul tells us that obedience to the law, obedience to the commandments of God, is a blessing unto the soul of God's people. Again, when God came up with the Ten Commandments, He wasn't doing it as kind of a science experiment. Saying, well, let's see how society would work if I make it illegal or immoral, I should say, to steal. Let's see, let's see what happens. 
Let's try this out. Well, again, that's not what the law is, right? The commandments of God are a revelation of the very character of who God is. Again, when uh, the Bible uh, tells us in Exodus 20 that we are not to bear false witness, it's because we serve the Lord of truth. It's because we serve the God who has revealed Himself unto us. And so bearing false witness against your neighbor not only brings damage upon your relationship with the Lord God, but it does damage to your neighbor and it does damage to your own soul. That's uh, one of the reasons why, if you're looking for some good reading this afternoon to help you fall asleep, I recommend looking at uh, the end of the larger catechism. And you have these three categories in the larger catechism when it comes uh, to the law of God. You you have the law itself stated, and then you have the positive aspects of the law and the negative aspects of the law. Again, I invite you to look at the positive aspects of the law and think about why it is a blessing to speak well of your neighbor. Why it's a blessing to be providentially watchful over your money. Why it's good to honor those in authority over you. To honor your father and your mother. Again, these things have been given to us as a blessing unto uh, God's people that we might live lives of joy, of comfort, of peace, and that we might rejoice in the good things that God has given to us. Because again, remember something that Paul says about himself. In Galatians chapter 2, he will talk at length about the danger of resting in the law for salvation. And again, when he talks about that, he reminds the people uh, that believing that your obedience to the law saves you shows that you do not understand the nature of the gospel. Because again, the nature of the gospel is that Christ has accomplished all things. That Christ has died for your sins on the cross. That Christ has given to you His righteousness that you might be holy. Paul there reminds the people at Galatia that that doesn't mean that the law of God then is thrown out. Right? We're not against the law. We're not against obedience to the law. But again, what Paul does here in chapter 9 again shows us the nature of Christian faith. Again, the nature of what we have been called to do as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have been called to be obedient to the Word that God speaks to us. And that's why he says there again, Lord, what do you want me to do? Because again, remember what Saul's been doing in his life. Everything he's been doing has been against what God would have him to do. And and you you think back at something Jesus said to the apostles. Again, he promises them that they will be put in jail. He promises them that they would be persecuted. Remember what he says about the persecutors? What do they think they're doing? They think that they are serving the Lord God. But what are they? They're kicking against the goats. Again, they are attempting to fight against heaven itself. Again, we don't have to be rocket scientists to know how that goes. And is there anything in this world that is capable of overthrowing the kingdom of God? Is there anything in the world to come 
that is able to overthrow the kingdom of heaven. Well, of course, we all know that's the truth. We, we, we testify with our lips that that's true. But again, do we believe in our hearts that that is true? Because again, that's the nature of sin again. Again, sin is telling you what Satan told Eve in the garden. Hath God really said? And do I need to be obedient to the law? Is it okay if I'm just obedient to two-thirds of it? You know, is God going to give me kind of extra credit if I do more than a B-level work? Well, again, that's not how this relationship is supposed to work. Again, the Bible is clear, uh, that as Jesus tells us in John, that if we love Christ, what are we to do? We're to love His commandments. Well, what does it mean to love something? And to love something means to sacrifice for it. It means to give everything of yourself for it. It means to understand that whatever that is, is more important than you are. That's one of the things, of course, when we, when we have weddings, you know, we, we talk about the nature of love. And usually, of course, we read 1 Corinthians 13 there, which has always been kind of strange because I don't think Paul really had weddings in mind when he wrote that chapter, but it's a good summary of what love is and what false love is. And what does Paul uh, use as an illustration there for false love? Again, you, it's like clanging cymbals, right? Have you ever tried to sing to clanging cymbals? You know, is, is that what cymbals are for? You know, are, are cymbals given to help you uh, gather the melody to the song? You know, if we were trying to sing one of our Bible songs and, 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 and Kelly was banging cymbals together, you know, could we follow along? Well, not really because that's not what cymbals are for. But again, that's the nature again of that false love, of the nature of sin, the nature of kicking against the goads. And it is uh, telling God that I don't really need your wisdom. That I know better than you do. Just as Satan told to Eve in the garden. And hath God really said that if you eat of the tree that you will die? And of course, what did Eve find out? He found out that God wasn't kidding around. That God's word was true and that Satan's word was a lie. But again, one of the things that we're witness to in that, in that passage is the way that God, even though He removed them from the garden, uh, never forsake them because of the promise that He had made to them. That out of Eve would come a seed. And what would the seed do? The seed would trample the head of the serpent. And that witness there of the nature of the gospel that Jesus Christ has trampled the head of the serpents of our heart. That Jesus Christ has destroyed the old man within us. That Jesus Christ has put to death our sinful desires. And because Jesus Christ has done this, what does Paul say we are to do in Romans chapter 6? Are we to sin that grace might abound? Again, may it never be. What are we to do? And we are to love the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be obedient unto Him out of thanksgiving for the love that He has shown for us. Again, brothers and sisters, while we again begin here in the life of Saul by looking at his mighty conversion, 
one of the other things we see in the midst of this chapter is that the Lord Jesus doesn't send Saul out on his own. Again, Saul knows things, right? He's not ignorant. Right? Saul is, again, a man who sat at the feet of Gamaliel. It's likely Paul, Saul at this point in his life had memorized the entire Old Testament. He could have stood up in front of you, and if you had the time, uh, he could have from memory read Genesis 1-1 all the way to Malachi chapter 3 without missing a beat. But what good was that knowledge to him in his sinfulness? It served no purpose for him. So Saul is somebody who knows the truth. He knows the words. But God doesn't kind of send him out at this point to go and be the, the apostle of the Gentiles. What does he do? And so he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. Now, who's going to tell him what to do? Well, we'll talk about this next week, but he will meet with Ananias. He will meet with Ananias and then he will later meet uh, with others of the church at Damascus. See, the Lord Jesus Christ has never intended for any of us to be individual Christians. There is no place in the Bible that you can find any place that says that we can live outside of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. In this idea that you can kind of do Jesus on your own is completely outside of the teachings of the Scriptures. Again, we have gone from one family where Satan is our father to an entirely new family being adopted by the grace of Christ into the family of God. We have gone from being aliens to the Father to being the sons and daughters of the Father. And being brought into this family of God, again, we need to think once more about the Word that God has given to us. Again, we think of those last six commandments, and all of them illustrate how we are to treat one another. And it's not only how everyone's supposed to treat one another, but they especially inform how we are to treat one another. And when we think about uh, the language again of the Tenth Commandment, you know, thou shalt not covet. You think about the damage that it does to our souls from day to day. As we look around and we see things other people have and we desire them. And what is the positive aspect of the Tenth Commandment? Not only is it being thankful for what God has given to us, it's being thankful for what God has given to our brothers and sisters. It's rejoicing in what God has done for our fellow believers in Jesus Christ. Again, when, uh, when Saul here will arise from the ground, and when his eyes were open, he sees nothing. But they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. You know, it's, a, it's an interesting thing here that we see again, thinking once more about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, what, what, was, what was Saul's goal in everything he was doing? It was to stop the spread of the Word. To stop people from preaching Jesus. They thought that they stamped it out in Jerusalem by arresting uh, Peter and John. But what happened? We heard that because of the persecution in Jerusalem, the people spread. 
And guess where they went? Well, they went to Damascus. And now Saul is going to Damascus to try to shut down the church. Now let's say for the sake of argument that Saul's not converted here and he makes it to Damascus and starts doing things. Well, what do you think is going to happen? Well, the people are going to go from Damascus to Antioch. They're going to go from Antioch uh, to Asia. And they're going to go from Asia into Italy. And they go from Italy into Spain. They're going to go to Spain and to France and to Germany and into England and to Scotland and to Ireland. And we see in the testimony here of Acts chapter 9, again, one more example of this kicking against the goats. Again, no matter how much the enemies of Christ attempt to shut down the preaching of God's Word, we have the promise that it will go from nation to nation and from language to language and people to people. And why is that? Because it's not up to Saul to preach the Gospel. It's not up to Peter and John. Yet it's not because these men were in the presence of Christ that the Gospel does its work. It's because of the power of God's presence and the power of God's purpose from generation to generation. Again, that's why we have such freedom to preach the Gospel. Because it's not our Gospel. It's not our words. We have been given this awesome responsibility to go out unto the nations and proclaim Christ and Him crucified. We've been given this awesome promise that the words in which we speak will not go out in vain. As it says in Isaiah 55, What does Isaiah say there? It will do the work that God intended for it to do. And what's the call for us? Not only to go out, but to remember, again, whose words we're preaching. It's not for us to kind of change things for different audiences, as if sin is different in different cultures. Again, we have been given a perfect word. We've been given a perfect revelation. Again, one of the things that's necessary, of course, for us as we go out is that we must proclaim this Word as it's been given and to rest it in our own hearts, to know it, to dwell in the Word, that we might proclaim this Word to all in whom we come into contact, knowing again that Jesus is the Christ and that we belong body and soul Unto Him. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks again that You are the God above all things. And that You are the God.